Diane Hout is going to be speaking to us. She is um, a civil rights lawyer, has been involved in civil rights cases for uh, many, many years. She actually began, I believe, your, her legal work here in Milwaukee. She's a graduate of Waukesha South High School. That shows you that she's part of this community and lived in Washington Park. She's a graduate of Columbia Law School and is currently of counsel with a firm, a New York civil rights firm known as Emily Seeley, Brinkenhoff, and Abaday, where she represents individuals and organizational plaintiffs in fair housing cases. Prior to joining that firm in 2009, she co-founded the Fair Housing Justice Center in New York City and served as its first executive director. She previously worked for the um, Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. As senior trial attorney, she served um, as lead counsel in dozens of housing discrimination cases um, on behalf of the United States. She was part of the Enfor civil enforcement section of that department for 13 years. In 2000, she was named Special Litigation Counsel for Land Use and Zoning. In that role, she oversaw the development and litigation of race, national origin, and religious discrimination cases in, um, involving, for example, land use, um, zoning, redevelopment plans, and building and occupancy codes, and how those can impact where people are able to live. She has also taught a seminar in, um, on housing discrimination at her alma mater, Columbia Law School. Um, I'm very pleased to be able to present Ms. Hauk here today. Um, I've met her years and years ago, we just recounted, and she knows, I believe, many people in this community as well, and she was very gracious to come to speak to us from New York today. Ms. Hauk. Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see uh, many old friends uh, and faces that I have missed for many years, uh, as well as those of you uh, who are working um, with organizations and firms uh, here in Milwaukee to continue the work that I began uh, with many of you here in this room when I graduated from law school in the 1980s. Um, I want to thank the Eastern District Wisconsin Bar Association along with the Wisconsin Association of African American Lawyers for inviting me here today. Um, one of the things we talked about is uh, whether I could have an opportunity to share with you some of the work that was done following what you just saw in the video. So after the law was enacted, uh, state law, the city law, and the federal law, what happened here in Milwaukee? Uh, and focusing in part on the time period when I was here, I was lucky once I went to the Department of Justice uh, to be assigned to work in the Midwest. So I continued working in Wisconsin, in particular with the U.S. Attorney's Office and with Jim Santel, who I know is somewhere in the room this afternoon, um, uh, throughout the 1990s as well. Um, and uh, Judge Gorens, when you mentioned uh, I got this fancy title at one point at the Department of Justice, it turns out that the woman who uh, gave me that title, is here this afternoon. Her son is a law student at Marquette Law School, and she surprised me, Joan Magana, by being here this afternoon to uh, share this time with us. So I'm happy to talk about some of the work she did as well, because one of the very important cases the Department of Justice did here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was when Joan was uh, deputy chief uh, in the housing section in Washington. 
So I, I want to talk uh, where things went after, as I say, you saw in the video, uh, the impact that the Fair Housing Act had here in Wisconsin and the role of the Wisconsin federal courts in particular in enforcing uh, the, new, the new law. And then when it was amended in the late 1980s, uh, reinvigorated uh, role that the federal courts had. Uh, but it starts in part with the court case that was mentioned in the video. There was a court case mentioned uh, because the city council uh, adopted uh, and agreed to put on the ballot for vote uh, the following referendum. And I was able to find the, the language which was, uh, be it resolved uh, that the Common Council of the City of Milwaukee shall not, and that's in capital letters, shall not enact any ordinance which in any manner restricts the right of owners of real estate to sell, lease, or rent private property. And with that short sentence, uh, a group of advocates and attorneys, uh, some of you may know Richard Perry and her brat and Leonard Zabrensky went to federal court to try to obtain an injunction stopping that referendum from being put uh, forward to the community. The, what they did in presenting the trial to Judge Tian, who was mentioned in the video, is they had African Americans with stories of housing discrimination that had occurred in their own lives come to federal court here in this building and testify about what had happened to them. The trial was held in January of 1968. So by then there's this state law, really is uh, a very uh, weak law, and I'll talk a little bit later about how and why it was weak, but it's before there's a Federal Fair Housing Act and it's before the city council finally agrees to adopt a local city law. And during that trial, one of the individuals who testified is a man named Ron Britton. Now, some of you know that Ron was my former law partner uh, in the 1980s. Um, and uh, it's not just a colleague of mine from that period, but a lifelong friend. And he had given me some time ago the transcript of his testimony uh, from that. And I wanted to share with you a little bit about what happened to Ron, because I think it reflects the nature of housing discrimination at that time in the 1960s here in Milwaukee. Ron is an African-American man who had just returned from Vietnam, serving four years in Vietnam in 1966, and he and his wife and their young daughter responded to an ad and attempted to rent a unit on the west side on 30th and Burleigh. And when they went to the house, they called on the phone and got information, were told to go look at the house and see uh, if they wanted the apartment, and they called back and said they would like it, and so the owner invited them over to her home a little bit further out on the west side. And when they showed up and the owner uh, met them for the first time, uh, she told them that she could not rent to them. And uh, Attorney Perry asks Ron during the proceeding, one of the most important questions we lawyers learn, which is, and then what happened? Uh, and when Richard asked him that question, Ron, by now, he's 24 years old, so when this happened to him, he was only 22, just returned from Vietnam, and, uh, and uh, young, married, and with a very young daughter. So here's what Ron testifies. So I went back in, and I asked Mrs. Ellenberger, I said, is the reason why you aren't renting the flat to us because we are Negro? And she said, yes. She said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. Your money is just as good as anybody else's, but if I rent to you, the people downstairs will move. Well now, Ron and his wife Norma knew there was nothing legally they could do about that, so they went to see Father Grappi. And Father Grappi came up with the idea of gathering 
parishioners together, this was in December, it was Christmas time, and going to the home of the landlord and singing Christmas carols every night in front of her home. So that is what they did. And Ron testified about that again in this hearing uh, here, here at the federal courthouse and what they did. That experience led Ron eventually to go to Marquette Law School, earn a law degree, and open a law practice on the Sherman Park neighborhood where I lived uh, for a number of years with my husband, uh, and is what introduced me to Ron uh, and, and began the work that we, we did together. Um, at the end of his testimony at that hearing, uh, Attorney Perry said to Ron, have you found a satisfactory way to explain this sort of thing to your child now that your child is a little bit older? And Ron's answer and his final testimony is, no, I haven't. So I am very um, glad that Ron shared this with me, and I am sorry that he cannot be here today. He is retired from the practice of law, and for those of you who know him, he is ill with Parkinson's disease. Um, but I wanted to make sure that I shared with you his story, because it's really those personal stories when pieced together uh, create the stronger fabric of what has been done and what can be done in the future here in Milwaukee to combat housing discrimination. And housing discrimination has changed a lot since the 1960s when Ron and Norma went through this. First, we don't have as much of it as we used to. We don't have the overt uh, apartheid laws from the federal government and from our local and state governments and more landlords and realty firms comply with the law. Rates of discrimination have gone down. But we're starting from a really high point. <laughs> they had a long way to go, and they still have much more to go. And the nature of housing discrimination now is part of the very challenge we're facing. And it really has four pieces to it. You know, when Ron and Norma were discriminated against, it was what we think of as a slam door discrimination. The landlord just told them to their face, you're not going to be able to live here, and it's because of the color of your skin. That is not as common today when talking about race and national origin. I think today it's more what I refer to and many others as a revolving door. People are politely escorted in and through and ultimately away from the housing of their choice. It can be done in a variety of ways. For example, some landlords and realty firms take steps to intentionally just avoid contact uh, with individuals. They may have selective places for advertising or not advertise at all or only put a sign up in the neighborhood where the housing is located. Maybe only take referrals from people who've been tenants previously or from employers in the neighborhood who they're familiar with their hiring practices or word of mouth get the word out that the unit is available. Even those landlords and realty firms who actually have contact with people of color may use facially neutral policies. They know because there are fair housing laws, I can't have a policy of not renting to people who are African American. I've got to come up with something else. So they come up with neutral policies that they've heard are permitted under the law. Uh, perhaps um, it's uh, the rate at which they set rent, the type of background check they're going to do, requiring an application, requiring a security deposit and one month's rent. So they use what appear to be facially neutral policies, but then apply them in an unequal manner as the transaction goes forward. So in the initial contact, everything seems fine. People are equally provided information about what's available, the amount of rent, the date when it's available. But as someone expresses greater interest, maybe returns with a spouse or other members of the household, expresses an interest in an application, 
The, the landlord or realty firm may offer to waive or change or reduce the requirements for the more desirable applicants. Of course, the person who's not getting those benefits has no way to know that it's happening to them because they're still being treated politely, they're still being offered a chance to see the unit, and they're being told what the rent is. A third reality of today's way of discriminating is for landlords also to adopt facially neutral policies that they apply to everyone, but they have an adverse impact on certain individuals. I think for here in Wisconsin, a challenge of thinking about discrimination against people with Section 8 vouchers and other forms of public um, sources of income, those policies may seem neutral. The state law for source of income does not include Section 8 vouchers and the city law doesn't, and the federal fair housing law doesn't here in Wisconsin. I know it's something that your community is struggling with. The county is maybe considering adding a law. In New York City, uh, we added a law about five or six years ago, maybe it's been eight years now, to include Section 8 vouchers. But just having that neutral policy of not accepting Section 8 vouchers uh, may have an adverse impact in some communities on female-headed households. It may have an adverse impact on African-American or Latino renters who are lower income. And so it's a way to accomplish race and national origin discrimination and segregation, but doing it through a neutral policy. And finally, camouflaging all of this with a friendly disposition and polite conversation and good manners. Uh, I litigated a case recently in New York City where the building super in a building of about 50 or 60 apartments, he and his wife lived there and he had the responsibility for showing apartments when people came by the building. Well. Fair Housing Justice Center sent out testers just like testers have been sent out here in Milwaukee for many decades and with recorders just like here in Milwaukee. And for the African-American testers, well, boy, the super was really friendly and nice to them. He greeted them. He showed them all the amenities in the building. He took them to see an apartment. Now, the apartment wasn't quite available when they needed it to be or it wasn't the size they had asked for or the rent seemed a little high, but he was awfully darn nice about it and would hand out his card and encourage them to come back and stay in contact with him. Now when white testers went out, probably half the time they spent with him. He wasn't very courteous or nice. He wasn't about handing out cards. Instead, he'd give them an application. He'd quote them a lower rent. He'd show them more apartments and the apartments would be available much more sooner than they were for African Americans. And so it wasn't about judging if someone's nice to me or not to evaluate whether I've been discriminated against. It's about the amount of rent someone is quoted, when apartments are available, and the process for gaining access um, to them. So it's this very invisible nature of contemporary housing discrimination that unfortunately ensures its sustainability. It's even through all the decades since the Fair Housing Act was enacted, the law continues to place a very heavy burden on the victim of discrimination to come forward and file a complaint and to access the courts. This was particularly true in the 70s and 80s before the Fair Housing Act was amended and the Department of Justice and HUD had a stronger statutory role. And so in those early decades, it was up to the person being discriminated against to come forward. Now, Ron Britton and his wife Norma, they knew they were being discriminated against because they were told that. So if there'd been a law, they could have hired attorney, they could have come to court they could have had some redress. But now, as discrimination becomes more subtle, how does the individual person know when they're being discriminated against? If they're being treated courteously, if they're shown an apartment, provided an amount of rent, how do they know they're being quoted higher rent or that there are other parts of uh, apartments available or in other buildings in other parts of town? 
And so while there have been periods of time when the federal government has taken a more robust approach and used the new authorities that it gained in the late 1980s to file lawsuits to stop patterns and practices of discrimination, including here in Wisconsin, um, those efforts have unfortunately diminished overall in, in more recent times. So I want to focus on, well, what happened then here in Milwaukee after there was a federal law and the city law was passed uh, and the state law? Well, that state law was a problem because built within that state law was a provision that made it illegal to do testing. So how would you gather any evidence to show you've been discriminated against? For every test you did, it was a fine of 10 to $200. So an individual tester, if they just went out to help a friend and did a test, it could be a $10 fine. Even then, not a lot of money. But a nonprofit organization or trying to do testing in response to complaints, trying to root out systemic practices, doing many tests, couldn't happen. And so there was no fair housing organization in Milwaukee during this time until the Department of Justice came to Wisconsin in the 1970s and filed a lawsuit against the state arguing that that provision of the state law was um, unconstitutional and that testing where individuals are given matched socioeconomic characteristics but for the one being tested. So in a test looking at whether or not there's race discrimination, it'd be an African-American and a white tester but of similar age, similar family size, looking for the same kind of housing. That kind of testing, uh, Judge Doyle found, was essential to enforcing fair housing laws. Um, he held in his decision that it was undisputed that the Wisconsin statute chilled the exercise of the right to equal housing opportunity. And thus, the statute must be viewed as an obstacle to the accomplishment of the principal objective of Congress in passing the Fair Housing Act, that is to provide fair housing throughout the United States and he set aside that provision of the state law. And that's really when things began to change in Wisconsin in talking about increasing access to housing opportunities. Uh, first, the Sherman Park Community Association uh, took on a project in um, the late 1970s to do testing of uh, the largest, the four largest real estate companies in Milwaukee at the time. And Jim Walrath and Percy Julian represented the organization and 39 of Sherman Park's residents to file a lawsuit here in this courthouse to argue, one, that what these real estate agents were doing was steering and discouraging um, white individuals from moving to Sherman Park and steering African Americans away from and not telling them about opportunities to buy homes in Sherman Park. And that as neighbors who live together in Sherman Park, this kind of race-based race -based steering was threatening the loss of the benefits of living in an integrated community. Um, judge Reynolds was the judge, and from then on, for about 10 years, Judge Reynolds really was assigned, I can't tell you how many fair housing cases in this community uh, he was assigned and was responsible for overseeing through the process and to trial. But in the Sherman Park case, he found that the testing showed racial steering and that the Sherman Park Community Association and the individual residents had standing to bring that lawsuit. From that experience, those 39 plaintiffs realized, we gotta do more than this. This is just Sherman Park Community Association, it's just our neighborhood, this is a problem citywide. And several of those individuals were the impetus for organizing what became 
the Metropolitan Milwaukee Fair Housing Council. And we have a great row here of folks from the Fair Housing Council with uh, Bill Tisdale, the current president, and Carla Wertheim, the vice president, who've been with the organization almost since its inception um, in, the late, in the late 1970s. Um, with the creation of the Milwaukee Fair Housing Council and testing becoming lawful, there was a lot of fair housing enforcement happening. Uh, a lot of litigation being filed here in this uh, federal courthouse alleging race discrimination in the rental market in particular. There was immediately a backlash. Uh, and in Izzard v. Arndt, a case that also was assigned to Judge Reynolds, uh, it was a case where just sort of what we think of as an ordinary race discrimination, meaning African-American couple tried to rent an apartment, discriminated against, testing showed that there were differences in treatment, landlord was not a large landlord. Uh, suddenly, a large firm uh, here in Milwaukee took on the defense of this smaller landlord um, and sued the Milwaukee Fair Housing Council and its executive director, claiming that they were tortiously interfering with the landlord's business uh, and also claiming malicious prosecution and a few other things. This happened throughout the country. It didn't just happen here in Milwaukee. And again, it happened in the 1990s when the law was amended and the Department of Justice started to do testing around the country. The Department of Justice testers got sued. Uh, in Florida, when I was at the Department of Justice, there were a series of seven or eight cases that we filed down there. One of the defendants uh, came out with this claim of officious intermeddling which was a state law tort claim in Florida. And when we researched it, we found out it was from when uh, it was really a rural agricultural community. Uh, and if someone's cows or goats would cross over onto your land and eat your grass, you could sue the other farmer for officious intermeddling. Um, and this concept was tried to bring forward and some of the individual testers uh, were sued at the Department of Justice along with staff um, in the housing section. Those cases were all dismissed but dismissed in part because of the tradition here in Wisconsin of 10, 15 years earlier in Izzard v. Arndt, where the court recognized that you would actually be interfering with people's ability to exercise their federal civil rights if you didn't permit testing and if you exposed testers and organizations to, to lawsuits. Now, throughout this time from the 1970s and 1980s, the federal government had a somewhat limited role because the statute itself limited that role. For example, the Department of Justice could file parent and practice cases, and the very important case they filed in Wisconsin to stop the anti-testing provision is a good example of that, but they could only seek injunctive relief. The United States could not seek damages, could not identify individual aggrieved persons, so no compensatory damages, no punitive damages, no civil penalties. Uh, and at HUD, it was even worse. At the Department of Housing and Urban Development, you could file a discrimination complaint, they could investigate it, they could bring you into a room to conciliate and everyone could sit down. And then if you didn't agree to a conciliation, they then dismissed the case because they had no further jurisdiction or authority under the statute. The statute was written very quickly and it sort of feels like it was truncated and it just didn't go any, they only got so far in writing it and, and it enacted it before um, the pieces had really been pulled together. So it wasn't like in the employment context where you had the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that you could file a complaint and you could have an administrative proceeding. There was a cap of $1,000 on punitive damages. So for intentional race discrimination, the most 
that a real estate company or landlord could pay in punitive damages was $1,000. So there were limitations in many of the cases that were filed then throughout the 1980s uh, when I was here in Milwaukee. We filed here in federal court. We alleged the Fair Housing Act, but we used the 1866 Civil Rights Act a lot. We used some of the post-reconstruction uh, statutes which didn't, which didn't have some of these constraints and limits on who you could sue and, and what you could sue them for. So the 70s was an important time here in Wisconsin for creating the organizational structure, the testing capacity, uh, and starting to enforce the laws. It's really in the 1980s then that the organizations, the, the bar here in, in developing many Title VII plaintiff's attorneys as well as um, civil liberties attorneys that were here. And I see Bill Lynch sitting in the back, who was one of my mentors when I was first starting out and figuring out how to do this here in Milwaukee. You know, we're able to incorporate what they did in these other areas and apply them to fair housing, uh, fair housing cases. Um, so in the 1980s, as more and more litigation was brought here, particularly here in the federal courts, two themes emerged. And the two were, one, lawsuits being filed against local governments, against the city of Milwaukee, against the county of Milwaukee, against the city and county of Waukesha and surrounding communities, and then the, using the law to file discrimination complaints against private landlords and private companies that were discriminating. The theme with local governments was around what were local governments doing in administering their local housing programs. Uh, one example is really Section 8. Both here in Milwaukee County and out in the city of Waukesha, both Section 8 programs adopted a preference system. So in Milwaukee County, if you lived outside of New York, of out, see New York, I'm, I'm, I'm in New York, I'm suing a suburb in, of New York for the same claim now, and it's how many years later. Um, it's the town of Eastchester, and it uh, turns out that after 20 years of operating a, a Section 8 um, program, they've only uh, ever, uh, given out a Section 8 voucher to less than two non-residents, and both are African Americans, and one woman waited 12 years to receive her Section 8 voucher, and another woman who was white from the town applied the same month she did, and she got her voucher six months later. So this is still an issue we're struggling with as a country. Here in, in Wisconsin, in the 1980s already, um, the advocates here were, were taking action and using the courts on this issue. And so in Milwaukee County, if you lived in the county but outside of the city, you got put on one waiting list. And if you lived in the city, you were put on a second waiting list. And they didn't get to the second waiting list until they got through the first waiting list. And they would constantly refill the first, first waiting list. And so most of the applicants from the city who were African American or Latina never could get vouchers. Um, for example, I the numbers I pulled from the case are that for Milwaukee County, there were 1,400 Section 8 vouchers at the time in 1980, and only 70 of them were held by African-American households out of the 1,400 because of this two-tiered process. They had an unlisted phone number. They had one brochure, and if you got the brochure, not meaning one copy, but one type of brochure, and if they passed it out and you got it, it said on it that you had to be a county resident to get the voucher that was available for everyone countywide. And when a white tester called and got information from the program and applied to get a voucher, she was contacted by Waukesha County Section 8 a month after she applied. And yet a woman uh, who had been waiting for three years on the city list uh, came to the Milwaukee Fair Housing Council to say, 
It's been three years and no one has called me back and I haven't moved. I'm still in the same apartment. I'm still waiting for a voucher. Similarly with Waukesha City, um, the numbers I pulled there, they had 420 vouchers in the city program and two were held by African-American households. Both of these cases resulted in settlements fairly quickly. The numbers were stark, as I've shared with you. And particularly in Waukesha, there was a historical record from the Waukesha Freeman covering all of the city council meetings and board meetings to create the program where, contrary to what the city said, which was we're doing this to help try to provide housing opportunities to our own local residents, actually there was testimony by residents and by elected officials that if they just used a residency preference, it would help to keep the number of black families from Milwaukee moving out to Waukesha. So it was an intentionally racist policy adopted with a neutral sounding uh, tone to it. And as I mentioned already, this problem continues around the country. At the same time in the 1980s in Waukesha, uh, a landlord, a developer, built subsidized housing, uh, about 40 apartments. 30% of the apartment complex he rented to Hispanic tenants. It was after he rented it up and rented to Hispanic tenants that neighbors and others in the community got concerned that the apartment complex just, well, maybe it'd be better if there was a fence built around it. And they actually got the city council to adopt an ordinance, even though this was a residential neighborhood that had other apartment buildings. It wasn't just single family homes. None of the other apartment buildings had a fence around them. Got the city council to adopt a requirement that he would have to build an eight foot fence around the property. And by doing so, it would cut off the direct access to the elementary school that children living in the apartment complex would have. And they'd have to walk out on city streets that had no sidewalks through you know, one of these circular subdivisions to get out to the elementary school instead of being able to go uh, out the back of the apartment complex where the children in all of the other apartment complexes used that route to get to elementary school. Again, resolved by settlement because the, the facts were just so strong and so harsh. Um, and the fence was not built. Uh, they were able, uh, and Bob Angermeyer was the attorney who represented the, the tenants in that, in that case. Now, while this was happening at a government level locally, there's private discrimination going on. Um, I listed in my outline, for those of you who have it, just sort of a sampling of cases, and I looked at it, I was surprised. These are all just cases I had that went to trial, seven cases in four years here in federal court. So it's not, it's not Western District, it's not the, the county litigation, it's not any other attorneys. This is just to give you an idea of how many of these cases were being brought, and every single one of them was based on testing evidence. The role of the testing done by the Milwaukee Fair Housing Council was essential. In some cases, it would be the individual home seekers alone as the plaintiff. Sometimes they would join with the tester as a plaintiff. And in some cases where the individual who had been discriminated against initially did not or was not able to bring a lawsuit, the testers now in the 80s, based on a Supreme Court decision, could bring those cases. This courtroom here, actually, in uh, December, of, uh, let me see what I've got, so it's 87, so it would have been um, December, uh, the day before Christmas Eve in 1987, I had a preliminary injunction hearing here with Judge Warren. Uh, the case was Regina Bolden versus Iris Herrmann, and Iris Herrmann and her family owned a two-unit uh, two um, house on the west side of Milwaukee. She lived in one unit and was gonna rent out the other unit. And she hired a real estate firm to help her rent it out and screen the tenants. 
And the realtor did that. I, uh, Regina Bolden, African-American, single mom with a child, applied. She passed the credit check. She uh, had a good job. She was shown the apartment by the realtor. And the realtor forwarded her name to uh, Ms. Herman, the owner. Ms. Herman said, well, I want to meet everybody. You know, I know you've done the screening and all, but I want to meet everybody before I decide to rent to them. So she met with Regina Bolden, and the next morning she called the realtor and said she decided that she'd have to take the house off the market because her neighbors had been complaining that the realtor was bringing over too many black people to see the apartment. And the realtor did the right thing. She called Regina Bolden and she told her. And she said, you are being discriminated against. That is illegal. Here's the name of the Milwaukee Fair Housing Council. And if you need me to sign legal papers or do anything, you call me. My firm is going to refuse to continue working for this, for this landlord. So a lawsuit was started, and as we went forward in that lawsuit, because the apartment had gotten rented to someone else, there wasn't an apartment to be able to get for my client, we found out that as soon as a, a complaint had been filed, uh, the landlord had put the house on the market and sold it to a white family. And that was her only asset we had learned from her deposition. And it was pretty clear she did that the month after she got served with the legal papers, and that she was doing it to get out of having to ever have to pay any kind of judgment or compensate my client. Now, it was a bit of a wacky idea that Ron Britton and I had at the time for doing this. We weren't really sure what Judge Warren was going to say about this, because normally a preliminary injunction is about holding an apartment off the market for someone and preserving the unit for them. And we couldn't stop the sale because, as we found out, the white buyers were innocent in all this. They did not know what the owner was doing. They had purchased it in good faith and for a full price. It wasn't a, you know, a sham transaction. Uh, but Judge Warren held a hearing here in this courtroom the day before New Year's Eve. And when Iris Harriman came to testify, she lied about when she decided to sell her home. And we were able to show that. The judge got concerned, and he warned her. He said, you know, you're in federal court. You have to tell the truth. You're under oath. Do you need to take a break and talk with your attorney about this? Are you ready to go on? She was ready. So she continued to testify, and then she lied again. She said that she couldn't have discriminated against Regina Bolden, because she went ahead to meet with her when she already knew she was an African-American woman. And Judge Warren interrupted at that point. He said, well, how did you know she was a black woman? She said, it sounded like she had a black name. And at that point, Judge Warren said, we are taking a break. I remind you again of your oath to tell the truth. This is your chance. Go out in the hallway, talk with your attorney, figure out if there's a way to resolve this and you get 15 minutes, the court's taking a break. He took a break. Came back, she came in and said, no, I want to keep testifying. We are not resolving this case today. So she went back on the stand. She finished with all of her lying. And that day on the spot, I think in the 15 minutes he was on a break, he must have had his clerks dashing around to put this together, he read into the record a very short but very strong statement about the purpose of the Fair Housing Act and that since this was her only asset and she was intentionally trying to um, get rid of the asset and, and you know, would, could use the funds for anything, he ordered that the owner would have to set aside at the real estate closing a portion of the sales proceeds and deposit them here with the federal court in an interest-bearing account, and the court would handle those until the end of the case. Uh, we did settle at a later time, and those were the only funds that were available to resolve and provide some compensation for my my client, but I, I was so impressed that he was able on the spot to think of a way to try to resolve it and yet use the equitable powers that the federal court has. 
Now, in these six cases I list, I'm not going to go through them uh, this afternoon, except to say that uh, in one of them, uh, this was a case uh, that was tried, I think this was tried, it's the Staples versus Wicksburg case. I'm trying to remember if it was tried in front of Judge Evans. I think it was tried in front of Judge Evans. My co-counsel was Paul Higginbotham, who has gone on to be a state appellate court judge for many years and recently retired. And Paul and I, Judge Evans gave us a chance to do some of the voir dire ourselves, the part where you're questioning the jurors to figure out how to select them. And he wasn't just going to read a, a set list of questions. He would let it, we had to submit our questions to him, but then he would let us have some input. And Paul and I decided, based on my, my experience in, in trials the, the few years before that, this was the late 80s by then, I said, a lot of the jurors are going to be white. We're going to have very few African-American jurors. And I just wonder, I think we need to get more out, not about do you have an African-American friend? Did your, one of your children marry someone who's African-American? Did you adopt a child from another country? Not those questions, but the questions about what you do in your life, where you work, who do you work with, your interactions, your social context. Um, and so we got a question back from Evans Approve where we could ask whether in the job you have, have you ever been asked to discriminate based on race? We thought nobody would say anything, but it'd be a way of educating the jurors that discrimination can happen in a lot of places. It can happen when you're at work. It can happen in your personal life. It can happen when you're going out to, to eat and out in, the, in public accommodations. And one woman raised her hand. She said yes. And the Judge Evans let her go ahead and tell her story. She worked at a JCPs in Racine. And they had installed a buzzer. And if a black person walked in the store, there was someone who pushed the buzzer, and that buzzed in the security office, and the security guard came out and would follow them to make sure they didn't shoplift. Well, now Paul and I didn't quite know what to do with that, because we couldn't really have her on the jury, because she said she had done this her whole time there. On the other hand, she was probably the most honest person on the jury sharing the story with us. So Judge Evans all, called us all into the back room, and he said, I'm not telling you what to do, but here's my suggestion. I'm going to give everyone two extra strikes. Just, you know, without, having, without cause, keep going on with your questions. Let's wait to the end and then decide who you want to keep on the jury. And maybe that will give everybody a little bit of flexibility to resolve this problem without us having to go through a formal motion uh, to strike. And it actually worked. It turned out we did decide to strike her, but it, it turned out that the, the jury um, uh, went forward and found uh, liability and, and actually, interestingly, ordered a $6,000 for an African-American tester, someone who was not actually trying to rent the apartment, but because he had been discriminated against, understood uh, and listened to him testify about that experience. Now, one more piece I want to say, and then um, nobody's been giving me the five-minute mark, but the wonderful thing about Wisconsin courthouses is they all have a clock in the back, and I really miss that. <laughs> um, so I have been keeping my eye on the clock. Um, in 1988, the Fair Housing Act was amended, and, and many of the powers I've talked about of the federal government were changed. HUD had an administrative process. The Department of Justice could now seek uh, damages and broader relief. And the first case where the Department of Justice used those powers in a testing case was here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And the case went to jury trial, was appealed to the Seventh Circuit, and the Seventh Circuit decision in United States versus Bell's jury is still cited all the time by those of us who uh, litigate testing cases around, around the country. Um, because in that case, the Department of Justice said, one, we can bring a case based on testing to show pattern and practice without necessarily other evidence. We can seek damages for testers. We can seek 
damages for the Fair Housing Organization that did the testing. If along the way we look at your rental records and we find more people we think who were discriminated against, we can add them to the case and seek damages without them having to hire a lawyer or intervene or join the lawsuit. And after all of that, we can also seek civil penalties for the United States. Uh, judge Kern was the judge, and he got it 80% right. First time in the country, really, this kind of case was being litigated. So the Second Circuit tweaked it a bit. It was confusing. How can you ask for punitive damages and civil penalties? But the Seventh Circuit said, no, you can. So there was a second trial later to, to, to tweak the kinds of remedies that the United States was asking for. But that broad scope of authority was so important in the early 1990s. And from there, the Department of Justice sort of ran with it. Um, cases were brought throughout the country with a different mixes and kinds of aggrieved persons. We kept doing work here in Wisconsin when I was at the Department of Justice, in part my interest knowing Wisconsin, knowing the groups, and being able to reach back to all of you. I think one of the most important ones was the United States versus security management case. This was a large landlord, 3,500 units in Wisconsin. That's a large landlord in Wisconsin. Um, and the units were in Oshkosh, um, in the suburbs, south suburbs of Milwaukee, and up in Appleton. And in that case, um, the case settled for a total of $218,000, which was the largest settlement at the time in, in a case like this, not just in Wisconsin, but I think nationally with this kind of testing. There was discrimination alleged against Hmong individuals, so the Fair Housing Group up in Appleton had recruited Hmong testers, and they had done testing. Here in Milwaukee, testing had been done with African-American testers, and testing had been done now with testers portraying people with children, because part of the amendments to the Fair Housing Act was to add disability and family status protections. And unfortunately for this real estate company and landlord and management company, discrimination, differences in treatment were found in, in, all, in, in all the areas. Um, again, the Department of Justice then brought cases and HUD brought cases involving sexual harassment here in Wisconsin um, and involving land use and zoning. And in the areas of um, national origin discrimination, migrant farm worker housing cases, um, and one case that did not involve the Department of Justice but was brought by a nonprofit organization operating group homes for people with developmental disabilities, uh, a disability related case that went to Judge Stadmuller who found on summary judgment in favor of the plaintiffs. And I think Rock, you were, Rock is somewhere, Rock Pidel somewhere in here. I think he was involved in representing some of the residents uh, of that home. So progress has been made here in Wisconsin, and in large part because of the role of the federal courts to apply and provide a meaningful forum to assert important civil rights that fair housing represent. But there's more work to do. We're gonna talk about that for the rest of this afternoon. And I just wanna say in closing, Think about that Waukesha fence case. It was about building a wall, and building a wall 35 years ago. What are we still talking about today? We're still talking about building walls, and that concept is still very much a part of a very unsettling public discourse that we have. The, the fearful and very mean-spirited chants of build that wall still reverberate in my ears from this past year, but as people concerned with fairness and housing, I think it just helps us to rededicate ourselves to tearing down the walls that divide us, and hopefully we can go out and continue to do that very important work. Thank you.